Hello, hello. Here we are. Fresh batch of John Doe & Co. coming at you not even slightly live. When judging merits of working creative mediums, I often look to the sixth episode, for that is where the superfluous and superficial fall away to reveal the true art underneath. You know who said that? Steven Spielberg. Directed Grown Ups 2. Pretty sure. I have it on good authority. My cousin's mate knows his vet. Gave me that kernel of insight. Well, tune your ears, Stephen, and others, because the sixth episode is what you're getting right now. A little tempting tipple of what awaits is a crime that still baffles experts to this day, and manages to stick out as an outlier even in a city with a storied history of old London town. Moved here just before the big boy pandemic came, and had a blast so far, just an aside. So join me as we go over the case of the two lives of T, Rangamaria and Garamu. I really hope I'm pronouncing that name right. I really apologise if I'm off. I openly invite you scholars of the interweb to absolutely batter me about the forums about it. Right, here we go. Let's go back very nearly 30 years to May 1992. A 27-year-old Maori woman by the name of T, Rangamaria and Garamu walked into Hampstead Royal Free Hospital in northwest London, armed with a pistol and hollow-point bullets. Now, the choice of ammunition is interesting in itself. A little digression here, I apologise. Hollow-point bullets are not the typical ones you might think of. They are used because they are more accurate than standard-pointed bullets and are not as penetrative, reducing chance of collateral damage, that being accidental damage. This being said, they also somewhat horrifyingly expand a bit upon penetration, meaning their lethal effect is much greater. It creates a large wound, an effect known as mushrooming. They cause a hell of a nasty bit of damage, basically. T, Rangamaria and Garamu wore dark, masculine clothing that hid her shape, not wanting to be recognised. She carried a picture of 38-year-old roofing contractor Graham Woodhatch. She had never met him. She found him chatting on a payphone, recovering from a procedure, and shot him four times in the face and shoulder before walking away. This earned her the horrific accolade of being the first recorded female contract killer in the UK. Media likes to portray hitmen and contract killers as ruthlessly efficient killing machines who are utmost professionals, almost the antithesis to James Bond, unflinching, undetectable, unwavering. They operate in the shadows, seldom making any errors. Think of Hitman the video game series, or Wanted, or any amount of films where there's the lone wolf operative. As we will see in T's case, this is not always the way things go down. Whilst her gender makes her unique, the murder she committed aligns with many others who have chosen to kill for profit. Disorganised, arbitrary, and not like the movies. Birmingham is famous for many things, a cracking Christmas market, even more cracking curries, and a Primark that is so massive it could probably enter Eurovision as a separate entity. As a bloody food court, mate, like what even? But I bet you didn't know that it's also famous for conducting the most comprehensive study on professional killers in the UK. Very prestigious title, that. In 2014, Birmingham University published a study called The British Hitman, 1974 to 2013. It was headed by McIntyre, Donnellan Wilson, 
David and Yardley, Elizabeth and Brolin, and Liam, just to give credit where due. This study revealed a number of startling things about the other oldest profession, so-called wet work. The average price for a hit in the UK was £15,180. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not an insignificant amount of money. It's a solid round of the chase or tipping point, a big smash on catchphrase, but to take a life, no price is right. The game show references be strong today. In all seriousness, £15,180 is like a decent car. It's just not even near what I would expect a hitman to want. The most expensive came in at £100,000, which still, just a better, swankier car, and disgustingly, the cheapest was just £200. That princely sum was asked of by Santre Sanchez Gale, who spent it on designer clobber after shooting dead a woman on her own doorstep in London. Thankfully, he was swiftly caught and brought to justice. The study also illustrates how there are four different types of contract killer. Novice, dilettante, journeyman, and finally, master. All but the last are at risk of being caught. Pretty scary that there is a category which just shows some never get caught. There are seasoned pros who slip up, and first-timers who bottle it and mess it up. As we will see... T, Rangamaria and Garamu sit somewhere between the first few categories. She did successfully carry out the hit and was mainly felled by a crisis of conscience once on the other side of the crime. A complete amateur who somehow seemed to fumble through it. Someone with no history of violence or personal connection to the victim. An anomaly amongst the anomalous. Successful hitmen have to go through a sort of disassociative process in their head. They have to start seeing life as just another commodity on which you can attach a price tag. Everything becomes transactional. According to Dr. Mohammed Rahman, a criminologist and lecturer at the aforementioned Birmingham University, this was the sticking point for T. He said she carried out the hit and knew she had to protect herself. What she couldn't do was carry on as if she hadn't. So who was T and how exactly did she join the ranks of professional killers? T, Rangamaria and Garamu worked in the Caernarvon Castle pub in the glorious Camden in North London. Amidst the market stalls and would-be Ramones was the pretty bog-standard watering hole. People who frequented the place remembered that it attracted all sorts from old-school mods, punk rockers and American tourists eager to subject themselves to the horrors of their first druggy pint of John Smith's. T was popular among patrons, her name being Sparky for her bubbly, bantering personality and Kiwi charm. Before hitting the glorious tiles of old Camden Town, she was raised in a middle-class Christian family in a small village on New Zealand's South Island. She came to London in her 20s after studying physics, chemistry and maths, so she was clearly a bright spark. She'd represented her country in surfing competitions, spoke fluent Japanese and was regarded as astute, affable and... Other nice adjectives beginning with A. None of this would imply any inclination to commit heinous acts, particularly ones of violence. A man named Deeth Bridges would change all this, though. When the 20-year-old budding builder with a buzz cut first asked her to kill Graham Woodhatch, she laughed. I suppose, what else could you do, to be fair? T and Deeth became very close, being described as like brother and sister. 
Their relationship continued to develop and grow stronger as she worked and lived in the pub for two years. Deeth was born in the UK, but coincidentally was also brought up in New Zealand before moving back to Blighty, which, like, why? I've got to admit, I've never been to New Zealand and my experience of it pretty much begins and ends with Lord of the Rings and these corny adverts. But what else do you need to know? Looks bloody amazing. Let me tell you, as good as Pepsi Max at Blackpool Beach is, I'll take the literal Shire any day. Deeth also worked at the pub and he became friendly with a 30-year-old roofer named Paul Tubbs, cousin of Paul Potts. Made that last bit up. Thought I'd whack in some kitchenware-based humour for all you nutty culinary comedy aficionados. Anyhow, Paul Tubbs was successful and didn't mind regaling those around him with his rags-to-riches story. How he went from a scrappy 15-year-old kid on building sites to North London roofing maestro. Another man who completed the terrific trader trifecta was Graham Woodhatch, another roofer. He was reportedly very successful and lived a lavish lifestyle with a country house and swish car. Tubbs and Woodhatch sadly didn't go into an eponymous buddy cop franchise as would be well suited, but they did partner up and took their industry by storm in the 1980s. It was all wham and baby sham for a short while. Their blossoming partnership and booming trade barely lasted into the 90s. By the time the old 1990 rolled round, the pair were in dire circumstances. Woodhatch was not quite the wolf of Roof Street as he portrayed, and his dodgy dealings and explosive temper spooked Tubbs. Woodhatch was living well beyond his means and had towering debts. In 1992, £50,000 had gone missing from the company account. Tubbs reported this to the police and was horrified when Woodhatch retaliated by threatening to kill a female colleague. It was unclear as to how sincere this threat was, but Tubbs and Bridges did not want to test him. They started to resent their partner, fear him even. Resent and fear him so much that they soon began to talk about how to remove him from the equation. Now, neither man knew in particular how to order a hit or wanted to commit it themselves. It's not something you can pop in the local paper or jump on checktrade.com luckily, so they were a bit of a stall in their murderous plan. What Bridges did manage to do, however, was get hold of a gun. It was this gun he gave the tea, wrapped in a towel with the succinct Ikea-like instructions of twice in the head, twice in the chest. T did not think the hit would go ahead of course, because why would it? These were just puffed up egos being a bit heavy-handed, surely. But go ahead, it would. T was advised that Graham would be in Hampstead Royal Free Hospital and that she could conduct the hit there. She turned up at the hospital, ready to commit the act, but ended up getting lost while searching for Woodhatch. She bottled it and ended up leaving. If only she just left it at this. The next day, T donned the men's clothes, pocketed the gun and went back to the hospital. She found Woodhatch chatting on a payphone. She approached, fired the gun four times. She left without being challenged and pretty quickly boarded a flight back to her home country of New Zealand. It didn't take long for police to arrest Bridges and Tubbs, the motive hardly clandestine. Back in New Zealand, T told her friends and family that she had been in a drug deal that had gone wrong and was fleeing. Police were of course suspicious about the relationship between T, Bridges and Tubbs and the fact that T had just jetted off to the other side of the world after the shooting. It certainly wasn't inconspicuous. 
police were keen to speak to her. She was told she could await extradition to the UK or go back voluntarily. Despite legal counsel suggesting the former, T opted to come back to London to face the music. She claimed God had spoken to her in a church in Auckland. It was hardly going to be the KFC down the road. She was overcome with a need to repent and confess to her crime. Some, perhaps a little more cynical people, suggested she was feigning religious intervention to land a lighter sentence. Others saw a legitimately regretful woman. In my eyes, whatever the deal was, at least it meant that justice could be served. A key question lay at the heart of the crime and still baffles people to this day. Why did she do it? She had no connection to the victim beyond her friend's hate-filled rants. No personal vendetta? The agreed sum for the job was £7,000, which is paltry in itself, but she only physically received £1,500. Why did she commit to the ultimate sin for the price of a decent holiday? A belter in Zante? Could it be that she was manipulated by her friends? Her loyal nature twisted into thinking she needed to protect her mates? At the time, media jumped on the case as they knew the novelty of a real-life femme fatale would sell papers. Much was made of the woman who had killed in cold blood. One need only look back to the case of Ruth Ellis to see what an absolute show it is created in these circumstances. After all, when a murder is committed in the UK, there is a 93% chance that the perpetrator is a male. I guess the rarer cases do command more attention. Kate Morgan, lawyer and author of Murder, the biography, also adds that when women do kill, there tends to be extenuating circumstances. There is desperation or self-defence. They tend to be committed when there doesn't seem to be any other way. Quote, people who have been abused or something, there's usually provocation or duress. The question as to why T really did this remains unanswered. T, Tubbs and Bridges were all put on trial in May 1994 at the Old Bailey. T made no effort to distance herself from the killing, detailing to the jury her biblical about-face. She said, I was pacing up and down, deciding whether to do it or not. Something snapped. There were four shots, but I only remember pulling the trigger once. That shot him in the face. That last bit really makes me uneasy. The whole thing does, of course, but just that sentence is really something... Like, to shoot someone in the face is just completely, like, barbaric. It's very personal, and it sort of feels like you're destroying what makes someone recognisably a person, if that makes sense. Where your eyes are and stuff. I don't know. Messed up in any case. As the trial went on, outside drama made matters even more complicated. Deeth Bridges was shot in North London whilst on a night out. He survived after surgical intervention, but it meant the trial was postponed until things died down. Tubbs's bail was revoked for his own safety. Nothing came of this supposed revenge hit. When the trial was resumed, all three defendants were sentenced to life. The Cairnarvon Castle was shuttered in the 2000s, which is a shame as I was hoping to go there to maybe ask around. A fire in 2008 completely destroyed the building, so nothing at all is left. Bridges and Tubbs both had their sentences reduced on appeal to 17 and 22 years, respectively. T. Rangamaria was deported back to New Zealand in 2005 after serving just over a decade of her sentence. She's a personal trainer now. I did actually find where she works and a bio about her and stuff. 
It's out there if you want to find it, but I won't point everyone there, as I suppose she's trying to put it behind her. Hell of a CV, though. Ten years really doesn't seem like much for murder. I get it wasn't a traditionally cut-and-dry evil killer scenario, but still. Looking through the pictures of the fitness company, the smiling faces of the trainers, I wonder if they know of the past of their colleague. Do you know the past of all of yours? Spooky stuff. Well... That about does it for this week's episode. What a wild journey that was. As always, big help to follow at John Doe & Co Pod on Insta and Twitter. You'll be able to see teasers for the upcoming releases, have a bit of a discuss and get updates to your feed. Rate, review and subscribe on your podcasting app. And if you want to go the whole nine yards and then some, head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash John Doe & Co Pod and donate. It's mainly about supporting the show right now, but some cool bonuses on there that will only get better the more of y'all are on board. Feel free to DM me any suggestions or what you'd like to see, as always. So, we're coming up to Halloween, or maybe if you're listening in future time, we've just gone past it, which technically means we're coming up to it again. It's always Halloween soon in my house. It either is Halloween or the countdown is on. And what could be more spookily seasonal than the senseless persecution of innocent women for the sake of little else than religious hysteria. That's right, episode 7, we're going to the Pendle Witch Trials. Not physically, thankfully, but you know what I mean. People are often talking about its more famous cousin Salem, but hey, good old Blighty had to get in on the silliness too. 7 is my favourite number, and this might just be my favourite episode. Don't miss out, and don't tell the other episodes I said that. See you all there, I hope, and thank you for being such good company. Peace out.